Well, I am sorry that Pastor Rob and some of the others who are going to bring the Word of God to you this morning had to be out sick. I am grateful for the privilege of being able to stand before you um, this morning and bring a message from God's Word. Um, we have just come off the season where we focus on our Lord's birth, but this morning I want us to fast forward about 33 years in our Lord's life uh, to focus on something that took place the eve of his death. So if you will, please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, we will be looking at verses 30 through 56, but not in depth at all of those verses. We'll have a particular focus for the message, but if you will turn to Matthew chapter 26, verse, beginning in verse 30. Well, yesterday was the, uh, the first day of a new year. It's uh, hard to believe that we've gone through another year and God has brought us to the beginning of a new one. Um, whether or not you're in the habit of making New Year's resolutions, I want to suggest to you today that all of us would uh, at least do well to make this resolution, and that is with God's help, we will seek to glorify Him by being more faithful in the area of prayer in 2022. So let me say that again, that we resolve, with God's help, that we will seek to glorify Him by being more faithful in the area of prayer in 2022. So with that in mind, we're going to be examining the account in the Gospels of Jesus praying to His Heavenly Father in the Garden of Gethsemane the night of His arrest. Um, this account is familiar to most of us, but we need to be careful because when something becomes familiar to us, um, it can get to the point where it ceases to have an impact on us. And we don't want to get there. We want to be very cautious that that does not take place. Um, this is a passage that needs to be approached with the utmost reverence. Now, of course, we should approach all of the Word of God with reverence, but I think we should pay a special reverence to those passages that address the suffering of our Savior. Uh, when you and I enter into the gospel portions that reveal to us what took place between our Lord and His Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, we are standing on holy ground. So let's approach this with the utmost reverence. So in the passage, Jesus and the 11 disciples, Judas has already departed to do his deed. Jesus and the 11 disciples, they, they finish the Last Supper, and they're going to be headed out from Jerusalem across the valley east to the Mount of Olives. Let's read verses 30 through 35. It says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered and said to him, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all of the disciples. So our Lord Jesus, before they depart the upper room and head out to the Mount of Olives, he warns them that each of them are going to forsake him. And they all insist that they will not. And of course, Peter is the most vocal and vehement and says, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Now, all of them should have remembered Proverbs 16, 18, which said, Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. But they have been given the warning, and now they head out with their master to Gethsemane. Now, there is so much that we can learn from this passage. There's so many things we could learn from it. And uh, I'm not exaggerating when I say that we could spend 52 Sundays looking at just what 
takes place between now and the arrest of Jesus. But this morning, as I've already mentioned, we're going to focus on what this passage has to teach us about prayer. We're going to hear our Lord's command that we pray as his disciples, but we are also going to look at his example. Um, A hymn from couple centuries ago, written by James Montgomery. It is not one of our more popular hymns, although I, I wish it were because it is so profound, but the name is Go to Dark Gethsemane. And the lyricist invites us to, to go to Gethsemane where our Lord prayed before his Father, and he takes us to the arrest and then the crucifixion and the resurrection. But that first stanza says this, Go to Dark Gethsemane, you who feel the tempter's power. Your Redeemer's conflict see. Watch with Him one bitter hour. Turn not from His griefs away. Learn of Jesus Christ to pray. And that's what we want to do today as we look at the account of Gethsemane. Learn of Jesus Christ to pray. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank You for the the privilege of being here today gathered together as brothers and sisters in Christ on this first Lord's Day of 2022. Lord, we indeed pray for all of those who were unable to make it today for sickness or other reasons, and we pray, Lord, that you would minister healing and recovery to them and return them to us just as soon as possible. But we thank you for this gathering. We thank you to be able to come here and and pray, and and sing your praises, and now to come to your word. Lord, we, we ask that your Holy Spirit, who inspired Matthew to write down this account, that your Holy Spirit would minister to us during this time, to illumine our minds, Lord, to help us to understand and apply your word to your glory. Father, we acknowledge our complete dependence upon you for all that we do. Your Son told us, without me, you can do nothing. And so we pray, Lord, that you would bless this time, this time in your Word, that your Word might go forth in power and conviction and instruction and meet each of us at the point of our need and help each of us, Lord, to be drawn closer to you and the discipline of prayer in this new year. And may it be, Lord, to the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, and the upbuilding of his body. And we thank you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to look at this passage and take from it four main points about prayer. Um, We'll only be scratching the surface, but hopefully this will be a catalyst uh, for us each to dig a little deeper on the subject in the coming days and weeks. Um, We are going to be in Matthew's account of this story, but I will be pulling from some of the other gospel writers here and there to get a more full picture of what's going on. But point number one is a very simple point, but one that we need to be reminded of frequently, and that is, that is this, that we are commanded to pray. We are commanded to pray. Now, having said that, we really shouldn't look at prayer as a command or a duty, but a privilege. But we do need to understand it starts with a command. We are to pray. Now, prayer simply uh, is communicating with God, or a simple definition, I should say. It's much more than that. But we are communicating with God. Kind of a simple way to think about it is through the Bible, through God's Word, He is speaking to His people. And through prayer, we are speaking to Him. Now, that doesn't mean that we are just saying words. In fact, we ought not just to say words. Prayer is something that, that, that comes from the heart and the mind and the spirit. We need to have the entire person engaged in this discipline of prayer. But in communicating with God and speaking to God, we are to express our praise of Him, we are to express our our thankfulness, and we are to present our requests uh, for ourselves and for others. And in this passage, we are going to be taught this command to pray by our Lord's instruction and by His very example. 
So if we pick up there in verse 36, it says, Then Jesus came with them, with the eleven, to a place called Gethsemane. They come to Gethsemane. Uh, that means olive press. And it was a garden that was located there on the Mount of Olives. Now, uh, if you remember your, bi your Bible geography, you have the city of Jerusalem. And if you travel uh, east from Jerusalem across the valley, you come to the Mount of Olives. And Gethsemane was a garden located on the Mount of Olives. There's some suggestions that it was uh, secluded, uh, perhaps fenced in or gated. But according to Luke and John, Jesus went there often to pray to his, to his heavenly Father. So they come to Gethsemane, and verse 36 says that Jesus said to the disciples, sit here while I go pray over there. So he says to the eleven, you sit here, but we find out that he's going to take three of them farther. So in verse 37, he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that would be James and John, this is the inner circle as it's called, he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Verse 38, then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. So he leaves the eight and he goes a little bit further with Peter, James, and John. And Matthew tells us that he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And when you do some word studies here, you find that this is an intense heaviness. He is thrown into terror and struck with dread. Now, we're not talking about a sinful fear here, of course. Our Lord never sinned. He never sinned. But there is this, this overwhelming sorrow. He is deeply distressed. He, he stops and he turns to Peter, James, and John. He says, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. So you couple that description in those two verses and you have this, this, this just unimaginable, indescribable, overwhelming heaviness and sorrow and grief. And Luke will describe our Lord as being in agony. Now why was our Lord experiencing this? Was it because He knew that He would be rejected by His people, the Jews? Was it because, as He had told them, that he knew he was going to be forsaken of all his friends in his hour of need? Is it because he knows what is going to be the excruciating pain of crucifixion? Is it those things? Well, those things are going to be extreme burdens. But the truth of the matter is, is that there have been other people who experienced those kinds of things than our Lord Jesus Christ. There are those who have been rejected by their countrymen, those who have been forsaken by their friends, uh, many who experienced the excruciating pain of crucifixion. So all of those are legitimate burdens even uh, uh, considered by themselves. But our Lord's burden was overwhelmingly because He knew He was about to bear the sins of His people. The Apostle Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For He made Him, in other words, God the Father made Him, God the Son, for He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us in our place as our substitute. Why? That we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Our Lord Jesus knows that shortly He is going to hang on that cross and the sins of His people are going to be imputed to Him. He is going to be the sin bearer. And He knows that in that state, His Father is going to have to turn away from Him. His Father will not be able to help Him. Not that He lacks the power, but it has been decreed that the Son of God must be the substitute, the sin-bearer for His people. Habakkuk 1.13 says of God, You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. And therefore, when Christ became sin for us on the cross, the Father had to look away. And we, and we see that truth expressed when our Lord on the cross cries out, quoting Psalm 22, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Our Lord Jesus is feeling that separation, feeling that His heavenly Father has had to look away and to allow Him to suffer and die on the cross. You've no doubt heard the, the song, How Deep the Father's Love. Perhaps you remember this stanza. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns His face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Do you remember that? 
the father turns his face away because he is too pure to be able to look on sin. That was the supreme burden that Jesus was feeling as he goes to the garden with his disciples and tells Peter, James, and John, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. It was, it was though he was feeling a sorrow that could have killed him on the spot because it was so overwhelming. And so what he tells them in verse 38 is this, the end of verse 38, stay here and watch with me. Stay here and watch with me. Now that is a command to pray. Uh, the word watch means to give strict attention to, to be on guard. And it's not, it wasn't that he was saying, be on guard against those who are coming to arrest me. No, he was, going to, he was going to have to go through that. It is be on guard in the sense of be on guard in prayer. Be in guard against temptation and prayer. Now, th this is a command to pray as seen in Luke's arrangement of the material. Um, he makes it clear that when, when, when Jesus tells Peter, James, and John to watch, he is wanting them to pray. He says, watch with me, pray with me. And so this is a command that was given, of course, in a particular specific con historical context, but it is ultimately a command to all of his disciples of, of all the ages that we are to pray. Ephesians 6.18 says, Pray always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end. There's that word watch, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. That's an all-encompassing command that came from Paul, the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray, 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 pray always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. We need to understand that a... Christian, a so-called Christian that does not pray is a contradiction. The Bible knows no such person, knows no such thing. The, the, the Christian life, from, from the human standpoint, begins with a prayer. In reality, it began, began in time, in eternity, when God called His people and chose them. But in the context of the human side of it, the Christian life begins with a prayer when a man or woman cries out to God in repentance and faith, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And so prayer is the very beginning of the Christian life from that standpoint. But we are to continue in the practice of prayer throughout our life. Paul also wrote to the Thessalonians in chapter 5, 17, pray without ceasing. Now, he didn't mean get on your knees and stay there till the Lord comes back in prayer. No, but he means make prayer a habit Look at prayer as breathing. It's like oxygen to the physical body. But, but in a spiritual sense, we must have prayer. Be dedicated to regular, disciplined prayer. We must pray. If you don't have a, a daily prayer time, I encourage you, make that part of that resolution in this new year, that you will take time every day to pray, with the, pray to the Heavenly Father, that alone time, personal time with God. But don't just relegate it to that. There are going to be special times uh, where special prayer is needed. Pray alone. Pray with your family. Pray with the church at the, at the prayer meetings. Uh, Pray silently in your heart. Pray out loud. All kinds of prayers, what we are commanded to offer up to the Lord. Again, the Bible does not recognize a Christian who does not pray. It is impossible to overstate the importance of prayer in the Christian life. You may have heard of Robert Murray McShane, Scottish pastor from the early 1800s. He's often quoted by Spurgeon. He has uh, bequeathed pre uh, subsequent generations a great Bible reading plan, annual Bible reading plan. But he was known as a man devoted to prayer. And he said this, A man is what he is on his knees before God and nothing more. Wow. A man is what he is on his knees before God and nothing more. That was a man who understood the importance of prayer. We are commanded to pray. But again, let's not look at it as a, a command and a duty. Let's look at it as a privilege to go to our Heavenly Father and commune with Him. Okay, point number two we're going to take from verses 39 and, uh, through 46. And that is this. We must be determined to overcome impediments to prayer. We must be determined to overcome impediments 
to prayer. Now our Lord Jesus, and forgive me, we're going to be kind of going back and forth here, but he leaves Peter, James, and John. He gives them the command to pray and watch. And he goes and prays by, by him, himself. And when he, it's in verse 39, it says, he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed saying, oh my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And we'll come back to that, but look at verse 40. Then he came to the disciples and found them asleep and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So our Lord in his humanity has pleaded with his friends and his disciples, Watch, watch and pray while I, I go pray over there. But he comes back and he finds them asleep. And so he reiterates the command, watch and pray lest ye enter into temptation. Watch and pray lest ye enter into temptation. And so here we have a particular reason we need to, to, to pray. Because we need God's grace and strength against the temptation to sin. Jesus said the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So, so he is... He is Referring to the believer's struggle, in our spirits, in our regenerated spirits, we want to do God's will. Remember how um, Paul describes that battle in Romans 7. Remember that where he says that I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I find myself doing things I hate. Do you remember that? He describes his struggle for us. This is what our Lord refers to, is that in our spirits, our reborn spirits, we truly want to do what is right. But there's a problem, and that is our flesh. This old redeemed, unredeemed flesh that we were in with, it, with its remaining corruption, there is a struggle that goes on. And Jesus says the flesh is weak. In other words, the flesh is weak to do what is right. You can't rely on the flesh. You've got to overcome it by, by, by prayer. There's this battle going on. Uh, Paul describes it this way in Galatians 5.17. He says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the, the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you cannot do the things that you wish. You want to do what's right in your spirit, but you've got this flesh, and they are always at odds in your life. They are always in contradiction to each other. Always. So the flesh is going to be of no aid in obeying the Lord. This flesh, at best, it has no strength to do what is right. Much strength to do what is evil, but no strength to do what is right. The flesh is lazy. It seeks to avoid discomfort and suffering and pain and even inconvenience. And so Jesus lovingly warns his disciples, you're going to have to pray. You're going to have to watch and pray. Yes, your spirit indeed is willing, but your flesh is weak. You must do this lest you enter into temptation. And so he teaches the disciples, Peter, James, and John, and by extension, all of his disciples, that prayer is what gives us access to God's grace and power for the overcoming of temptation. And so he tells them again, you've got to watch and pray. You've got to watch and pray. First Chronicles 16-11 says, Seek the Lord and, and His strength. Seek His face continually. Some of you are familiar with the writings of Puritan John Owen. And maybe you've read some of his works. Uh, sometimes there are three major works that he wrote, and sometimes they're compiled together and are called something like of, of sin and temptation, overcoming sin and temptation, or on mortification. And he is the one who said, you may have heard it uh, before, be killing sin or it will be killing you. You remember that? Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Well, John Owen in his work of temptation says this about Matthew 26, 41. He that would be little in temptation, let him be much in prayer. He that would be little in temptation, let him be much in prayer. This calls in the suitable help and relief that is laid up in Christ for us. 
This cast, talking about prayer, this casts our souls into a frame of opposition to every temptation. If we do not abide in prayer, we shall abide in cursed temptations. That's good, sound biblical advice. He that would be little in temptation, let him be much in prayer. That's the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, you remember the account. Our Lord Jesus Christ goes by himself to pray three times, and every time he comes back, he finds the apostles asleep again. Look at verse 43. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. Verse 45. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? And so every time, in spite of our Lord's admonition and encouragement, and folks, I don't believe our Lord is being stern with them. I don't believe He's being wrathful with them. I believe He's being tender and compassionate, but He's trying to warn them, admonish them. Why are you sleeping? You need to be praying. Now, Mark's Gospel, chapter 1440, says, they did not know what to answer Him. There was no excuse. Now, Luke tells us, Chapter 22, verse 45, that they, they slept for sorrow. They had heard our Lord uh, tell them that He was going to die that night, and it says they were sleeping for sorrow. But we, what we need to understand is that sorrow and grief itself can be a temptation, especially if we let it keep us from prayer. It, it, we, we sympathize with them in, in, their, in their grief and in their sorrow, but and they should have prayed for strength and perseverance. There, there is simply no excuse for not praying. There's no excuse. You know, if, if Christ were to come to me today and say, could you not watch with me one hour? I don't know what to say. I don't have an excuse. I'm not talking about this or that time. Somebody is in a coma, in a hospital bed. Obviously, there, there, there are exceptions to this. But in general, if I am failing to pray as I should, and my Lord comes to me and says, What? What? Could you not watch with me one hour? I don't know what to say. I find time to eat and sleep and work. You say, Well, you have to do that. Yes, I do. But I have to pray too. I need to see prayer is even, important, even more important than all those things that I must pray. No excuses. But, but oftentimes, our, our excuses are even flimsier than that. We find time to watch TV. We, we time, find time to surf the internet. We find time to engage in recreation. And I'm not saying that any of those things are, is necessarily in and of itself bad. But if we can find time to do that, can we not time, find time to, to pray if, if we're struggling in the morning with a busy schedule and having to tear out the door, well, maybe we need to consider going to bed earlier so we can get up earlier. This was what our Lord did in Mark 1.35. It says, Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, Jesus went out and departed to a solitary place, and there He prayed. Remember during the day, the, 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 the people thronged Him. And He knew that this is one of the mysteries of the Incarnation. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is God, but He's also man. And He he knows how critical it is for him to pray and to have time with his heavenly Father. And so he gets up before anybody gets up. Uh, it says a long while before sunrise, goes up into a mountain so he can have time alone to pray. We need to learn from him. We must overcome all the impediments to prayer because our life depends on it. If the sinless Son of Man, the Holy Son of God in his humanity, desperately needed prayer, what does that say about us? The disciples, they slept. Well, let's go on to point number three. We must look to Jesus as our example in prayer. We must look to Jesus as our example in prayer. So, number one was we are commanded to pray. So, He instructs us to pray, but He also gives us an example. We are to pray. So, let's back up now. Jesus went on Luke tells us a stone's throw from Peter, James, and John. And it says back up in verse 39, he went a little farther, fell on his face, and prayed. And I, I just can't help but 
think that our Lord Jesus Christ, he was carrying this heavy burden, this sorrow unto death, and I believe he just collapsed on the ground before his heavenly Father to begin praying. Now, we'll see at least six characteristics of, of prayer, ways that he uh, provides an example for us in, in prayer or characteristics of his prayer. We can call it that. Item A, and this is under main point number three, his reverence. We see his reverence in prayer. He fell on his face before God. Now, we can pray in all sorts of positions. We can stand and pray. We can sit and pray. Um, 2 Samuel 7.18 says that David went and sat before the Lord and prayed. We can stand. We can sit. We can lay down and recline. There's all sorts of positions for prayer. I don't think there's uh, anything magic about our physical position. But it does express something, doesn't it? And so I think there are times where we need to be literally on our knees and maybe on our face before our Heavenly Father. It shows a, a, a reverence for Him. Um, the, the writer of Hebrews, Paul, or whoever it was, uh, uh, tells us to come boldly before the throne of grace. That boldness is not in ourselves. That boldness is in complete confidence in Christ and Christ clothing us in righteousness and making us fit to come before our Father's throne, a throne of grace, no longer a throne of judgment to, for us. Thank, thank you and praise His name. But we should come in reverence. And so we learn there should be reverence in prayer. B, we notice His faith. First of all, it says He prayed. Why would he pray if he did not have faith in his heavenly Father? It's implied throughout the, throughout the account. In Mark 14, 36, he prays, all things are possible for you. And so see how Jesus in his humanity expresses his faith in his heavenly Father. He says, Father, all things are possible for you. Christ had no question, no question that his Father could do anything. And you and I need to pray in faith as well. We need to pray in faith. We need to hear the admonition of Hebrews eleven six, 6, which says, but without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe, have faith that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. That's faith. Coming to God because we believe He is God and He hears our prayers and He does reward those who diligently seek Him. He will answer our prayers even if it's not according to what our will. We're going to see that in Jesus' prayers, right? So we have to come to Him in faith. Paul said it's impossible to please Him without faith. Not it's hard to please Him, but it's impossible. Why? Because if we come to God doubting Him and doubting His promises, it's as though we're attacking His character and saying, God, I don't know if I can trust You. May it never be. May it never be that by a lack of faith that we call into question the character of our Lord. Now, we want to be honest and know we do stumble in that area, don't we? There are times that we do doubt. So I am, I am personally comforted by the story of the Father in the Gospels who Christ said, if you have faith, your child can be healed. And he said, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Do you remember that? It's a, that sounds like a contradiction. I believe I have faith, help my lack of faith. That's life in this unredeemed flesh, but may God give us grace to, to uh, have our faith grow, that we might please Him and glorify Him. So, A, His reverence. B, His faith. C, His affection. And verse 39, again, He says, O oh, my Father, O oh, my Father. Mark's Gospel says, uh, gives us a few more details. He says, Abba, Father. Now, you've heard before that word Abba is a transliteration of an Aramaic word that's roughly equivalent to Daddy, or Papa. It is a, it is a, uh, it is a, a term of, of affection and, and intimacy. And this, of course, demonstrates the unique relationship that Jesus has with his Father. He is the only begotten Son of God. He is eternally begotten. He is the Son of God by very nature from eternity. However, you and I, you and I, we are adopted into God's family, and Paul tells us that God gives us the privilege and the right to also call Him Abba, Father. In Romans 
Paul wrote, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. That's one of the things that Christ does for us. He, he, he dies for us to forgive us of our sins and He's raised from the dead that we might have new life and be regenerated and be born again into the family of God, adopted by God the Father. And now we too can cry out, Abba, Father. We come to Him as His children. We will never be only begotten. Okay? Christ is a unique Son of God, the unique Son of God. But we are, in a very real way, we become children of God. And we should come to him in prayer, expressing our love and affection. Item D, his persistence. We had reverence, faith, affection, now persistence. Our Lord Jesus Christ taught us to persist in prayer. Think about it. If we got our prayers answered seconds or minutes or hours after we prayed, would that be any encouragement for us to continue seeking the Lord? No, that would just reinforce this mentality of God's just there to give me stuff. When, when the goal is our relationship with Him, communing with Him, enjoying Him. And so there is actually a mercy in our Lord that He often doesn't answer us right away. Because He knows it, with us persisting in prayer, it draws us closer to Him. And that's a good thing. Well, our Lord Jesus taught about persistence in prayer uh, before he gave the parable of the widow and the unjust judge. Luke 18, 1, it says, Then he spoke this parable to them that all men, or excuse me, that men always ought to pray and not to lose heart. Men always ought to pray and not to lose heart. Kind of ties back into what Paul told the Thessalonians pray without ceasing, don't give up, persist. And we see here our Lord is persisting. Um, it says in verse 44, so he left them and went away again and prayed the third time. He prays the third time. And then item E, we see his earnestness. Again, kind of looking at Luke's gospel, Luke 22:44 says, he being in agony prayed more earnestly. This was not just words that he was reeling off. These prayers came from the depths of his soul to his heavenly Father, and we too ought to pray earnestly. John Calvin wrote, His tears and crying recommend to us ardor and earnestness in prayer, for we ought not to pray to God formally, but with ardent desire. With ardent desire. James 5.16, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Effectual, fervent prayers of believers, men and women, avails much. Prayer works. Prayer works. We ought to bring earnest prayer before God. And then finally, item F would be his submissiveness. His submissiveness. He, uh, we're going to get into this a little bit more here about the cup. Let's look at verse 39. Go back to 39 again. Sorry for the jumping around, but I want us to go back and pick up this idea of submissiveness. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, O oh my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but, but as you will. Drop down to verse 42. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, O oh my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. Your will be done. Done. Now, what is this cup that he is referring to? It is symbolic of God's wrath upon the sins of his people. Now, we find this picture other places in Scripture. There is a cup, and it is filled with the wrath of God against man's sin. Well, our Father appoints that his Son will drink the cup of wrath upon the sins of his people. And, and our Lord, in his in the midst of his suffering, he is resolving to do his Father's will, even though he's asking, if it's possible, if it's possible, let this pass from me. But he has an, ad, an attitude of submissiveness. Not my will, but thine be done. And this shows us again that Jesus is a real man. He is God. He is fully God and fully man. We just, we just finished celebrating the incarnation, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as of the glory of the only begotten Son. But here we, 
You and I, when we read about his life, we think here we see his deity, here we see his humanity, and here we see his humanity. He's a real man. He's not pre-programmed. He's not been given immunity from pain and affliction. And so we see a man in the midst of that truly seeking to be in complete submission to God. And that's an example for us that we need to pray with a submissive attitude, bringing our request to God, but saying in the end, but thy will be done, Lord, because I know you love me. You know what is best. You are always at work for your glory and the good of your people. And so Jesus pleads with his father three times, please, Lord, if it's possible. Let this cup pass away from me. Again, keeping in mind what we observed earlier, that he is about to be made sin, the sin of his people, and his father will have to turn away from him. Now, let me pose this question. Does Jesus' prayer make him seem, seem less loving? That he begged his father, if it was possible, that that cup would pass from him? Does it make him seem less loving? Does it reveal some reluctance on his part to serve as the Savior of his people? No. No, not at all. Not at all. A million times, no. Again, he said, if it is possible, Lord, if there is another way, if, if, if it is possible to accomplish the salvation of your people in another way, where I do not have to become sin and I don't have to feel that awful separation from you, then Lord, let it be. See, if it's possible, it's not that Christ did not want to save us. Of course He did. He's simply saying, if there's another way, if there's another way, Lord, then let this cup pass for me. But there wasn't another way. There wasn't another way. The death of the sinless Son of God would be the only acceptable sacrifice. The only acceptable sacrifice for the sins of his people. The only other option was this. Let men be totally and irretrievably lost forever. And God's love, grace, and mercy go undisplayed. That was the only other option. That man has to drink the cup the full wrath of God, and God's love, grace, and mercy go unmanifested. Well, as a result of our Lord's praying and His desire to do God's will, His submission, He receives strength to move forward. It, it was that struggle that really magnifies His love, doesn't it? That He was willing to bear that awful burden? That just underscores and highlights his love for us. What if it had been easy? But it wasn't. He was sorrowful unto death, and God gives him the strength to, to press on. Out of Luke's gospel, you don't have to turn there, but in verse 42 through 44, it says, Father, if it is your will, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. But his Lord strengthens him to go forward with his appointed mission. Verse 45, back in Matthew 26, Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, he who betrays me is at hand. So our Lord has completed His prayers. He goes back to Peter, James, and John. They're sleeping again. He pities them. But they have wasted their opportunity. They've wasted their opportunity to pray. It's too late now. Because Judas is leading the, 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 the mob and the soldiers to come and to arrest Christ. So he's not far off. And the Lord Jesus says, rise up, rise up, they're coming to arrest me. That leads us to our final point, number four. We must understand that to fail to pray is to ensure that we will fall. We must understand that to fail to pray is to ensure that we will fall. Now, I don't want to... I don't want to 
avoid this comment that there are times that God and His restraining grace may keep us from sinning and falling. But by and large, if we fail to pray, we can only expect to fall. Now let's read quickly through this next set of verses and we'll wrap this up. Verse 47, And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him. And immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and, and took him. Now, some of the disciples decide to fight. And John's gospel tells us that Peter is the one who decides to fight. Verse 51, And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to him, Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you not think that I cannot now pray to my Father and he will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? How then could the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? So, they hadn't prayed, and so when the testing comes, when the temptation comes, they resort to physical means. Peter takes up a sword and attacks the, the servant of the high priest and cuts his ear off, and Jesus reprimands him. You should have prayed. He should have prayed. But the time for praying, at least in this temptation, is over. So, see, they didn't pray, and so they, are now, they now take up physical means. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 10.4, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're not physical, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. That's the weapon they should have used, and they should have already employed it. Swords will be of no good in a spiritual fight. And so he reprimands Peter. And then he turns and addresses the soldiers. And uh, verse 45, In that hour Jesus said to the multitudes, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then look at that last statement there at the end of verse 56. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled just as he had told them. He had lovingly warned them, watch and pray, lest ye enter into temptation, for the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. But they didn't do that. They didn't do that. And so when the temptation came, they all forsook him and fled. And you know the story, not many hours after that, Peter will deny that he even knows this man, Jesus of Nazareth. So, we must understand that to fail to pray is to ensure that we will fall. Or you can say it this way, if we fail to pray, we fail. We fail. I want to read a quote to you from a book on prayer by Dr. John R. Rice. I think I need to preface this by saying that uh, there would be some fairly significant differences I would have with Dr. Rice on his doctrine. He's with the Lord now. Um, but be that as it may, I think he wrote something very poignant about the sin of prayerlessness that we do well to hear. He wrote, My greatest sin and yours is prayerlessness. My failures are all prayer failures. The lack of souls saved in my ministry is primarily because of lack of prayer, not because of lack of preaching. The withering away of my joy in my heart sometimes is the fruit of prayerlessness. My indecision, my lack of wisdom, my lack of guidance come directly out of my prayerlessness. All the times I have fallen into sin, have failed in my duties, have been bereft of power or disconsolate for lack of comfort, I can charge to the sin of prayerlessness. Oh, horrible sin, the lack of prayer. We can read Scripture, and we should, absolutely, as much as we pray. We must read Scripture, read solid spiritual books, listen to solid sermons, receive biblical counsel, maybe have prayer partners and 
accountability partners, but we as individuals must pray. If we do all of those things, but we don't pray, we fail. We fail. We must pray. We must pray. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we saw it played out. The disciples failed. They forsook Christ. They did not heed His command to watch and pray, though it was reiterated lovingly three times. And as a consequence, in His hour of need, they all abandoned Him and forsook Him. They didn't pray, so when the hour of temptation came, they entered into it and were swallowed up by it. But, in contrast, in contrast, our Lord Jesus did pray. He did pray. And His, his prayers were characterized by reverence, faith, affection for His heavenly Father. His prayers were characterized by persistence and endurance and earnestness and submissiveness to His Father's will. And His Father answered His prayers. It was not possible for that cup to pass from Him, but God the Father gave God the Son the strength to go to the cross where He bore the guilt of His people. He drank the cup of God's wrath that should have been poured out on us, and thereby He secured complete forgiveness for all their sins and all their failures, even their prayer failures. There was, there was such a, a promise of hope when He said, you're all going to forsake me, but I'll come back and meet you in Galilee. That implies forgiveness, doesn't it? Forgiveness and restoration. I don't think that means that the apostles never sinned again or they never failed in prayer, but Christ forgave them. And can you imagine how motivated they were to pray from that day forward? If you're like me, you're often guilty of failure in the area of prayer. Again, if God came and said, what, could you not watch with me one hour? I don't know what to say because I don't have an excuse. I don't have an excuse. I have less of one than the disciples did. Maybe you would say that, yes, I've experienced that as well. But we can confess, we can be cleansed because of what Christ did do on the cross and seek God's grace and strength to grow in the area of prayer. So with His help, let's resolve to do that in this new year. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank You for sending Your only begotten Son to this earth that He came, that God became man, that God took on flesh and dwelt among us and lived a perfect life, left a perfect example for us, but went to the cross, suffered the shame, the grief, the horror of becoming sin on behalf of His people and being separated from You. We thank You, Lord, for the substitutionary atonement. We thank You for forgiveness. We thank You, Lord, for redemption. We thank You that we are adopted into Your family and that now we too can call You Abba, Father. We thank You for Christ's resurrection, for His glorious, joyous, complete victory over sin and death. Father, help us to, to live in that joy and that strength, to look at prayer is not so much a duty but a privilege. Help us to be more faithful to prayer in the new year, to follow the example of our Savior, our brother, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray in His name. Amen.